Right, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, just checking I had my sermon, I thought I'd forgotten it there, um, to 1 John, 1 John 1, from verse 8, so it's just a very famous verse, it's first letter of John, chapter 1, and from verse 8. And it says there, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Let's just come and pray as we come to God's word. Father, there are times when we put our own feelings, our own experience before what your word tells us. And Lord, there are times when we find it so hard to accept that we're forgiven, not because of any work of our own, but because of what you have done for us. Father, help us today to hear what you think of us. Help us today to receive what you've done for us and help us by doing that to live lives that glorify you, lives that are full of your grace, that are marked by the forgiveness that's ours in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I think most of us can... Think back to notable occasions in our lives when we were embarrassed. There were too many for me. But I just have to look through some, some old photographs in order to feel an intense sense of embarrassment. Did I really actually go outside dressed like that? With hair like that? And wearing those glasses? Sadly, I know the answer. Yes, I did. Far too frequently. But during uh, the week, well, some time ago really, I came across two notable stories, true stories of embarrassment. One involves a man taking his wife out to a lunchtime showing of the play, Julius Caesar, as just part of their anniversary celebration. The time was 2.30pm, and sadly this time hadn't been chosen all that well because at exactly the same time this man's favourite basketball team was involved in a vitally important game which was on a knife's edge. So picture the scene. The curtain is up. The play is about to begin. And everyone's attention is focused on the stage except for this man. He's sitting with his earphones in, listening to the game. And just at that point, his wife looks at him inquiringly. Now here we encounter another one of those intriguing differences between men and women. Because what his wife was trying to communicate to him by that inquiring look was, this is our anniversary. You're here with me, so concentrate on this play or you're in trouble, boy. 
But a husband, you see, sensibly and understandably, in my view, he thought that what she was trying to communicate to him by this look was the all-important question. What's the score? <laughs> so he told her, 18 seconds to go, Lakers down by a point. But you see, most of us know, don't we, what earphones plus a sense of tension and excitement can actually do to our appreciation of volume. The next thing he knew, every eye in the theatre, from the actors on stage, and definitely his wife's, were on him. Oh dear. I don't have any, any to tell you about what happened later. My other story, though, concerns a pastor a bit closer to home who was overwhelmed when he found out that his wife was regularly taking tapes of the Sunday services. You know, he could hardly take it in. He was so touched and, and so humbled. Here she is, she's coming to church and then she's buying the tapes to listen to me again. So one day when they were out in a family out and he decided to share this with her. So he said to her, I was just so honoured to hear that you've been buying the tapes of all my sermons. With a smile, his wife replied, Well, yes, that's because they're the cheapest tapes I can get for the children. And she passed him then the empty cassette tape she was holding in his hand, in her hand, with a title on it, The Sovereignty of God, while through the car sound system, came the happy sounds of a children's sing-along tape. Now let me assure you, this is not a personal story in disguise, because Elaine assured me right back in the day that she always managed to find a cheaper source of tapes. So embarrassment at times can be a little bit funny, but imagine a moment of embarrassment that just doesn't go away, that just seems to go on and on. Imagine something... It's not about some little silly thing that happens, but rather something that actually seems to strike right at the very core of who you are. Imagine that, and you're just beginning to touch the edges of what we're going to look at today, of what shame is all about. Shame is about something perhaps that you did or something that was done to you where the repercussions seem to just keep going on and on, where the memory never leaves you, never fades. Shame is about someone feeling or having made to be feel that you're not as clever as you should be, not as good looking, not as athletic, not as popular, not as successful. That you're letting the side down. And shame, unlike embarrassment, can be lethal, especially when the events and experiences of life seem to, to transpire to validate that sense of shame. You know, when we maybe always seem to be picked last for sports at school, when we always seem to be the one standing alone, when we get made redundant at work, when our business fails, when our relationships, even our marriage maybe, come to a disastrous end, all of these things can underline our existing sense of shame. With this shame then working its way out and revealing itself in our lives in all sorts of destructive ways. Maybe in 
outbursts of irrational rage, addictions of various kinds, eating disorders, perfectionism. Yes, underlying extreme perfectionism, there is often a deeply rooted sense of shame. Let me just quote to you here. For these people, a faux pas is okay for others, but inexcusable for themselves. As a result, when they make a mistake, they are so self-condemning and reluctant to forgive themselves that they get imprisoned in a jail of self-directed anger and they throw the key away. Dr. Carl Thurman says here, if these people lose an important phone number, lock themselves out of their car or accidentally delete something from their computer... They don't just say to themselves, hey, everybody does that. That's life. Instead, they go ballistic. They are convinced that this minor lapse is just one more bit of conclusive proof that they have no value as an individual. Now, to a degree, at some time in their life, I think everyone tastes shame. But you see, most people are able to get through that. Most people are able to deal with it. Not everyone, though. No, some people feel crippled by shame. As one woman memorably said of her sense of shame, I feel like my deformity is showing. Let's look now, then, at shame and see if we can find out how it can be overcome. And in order to do this, we're going to answer just two basic questions. First, where does shame come from? And second, where do we find the power to overcome shame? In answer to the first question, where does shame come from? Well, those who've done research in this area, and we're not just talking here about, about Christians. No, this is just your average day-to-day psychologist as well. But most who have looked at this, they frequently use the analogy of mirrors. Mirrors. Now, have you ever been to one of those halls of mirrors? You know the kind of things when you, know, you look in one direction and you seem to be about 15 foot tall and really thin. That's the ones I like. And another, you're about three foot high and four foot wide. Well, imagine, just imagine this, that you were born to parents with a bizarre sense of humour. And say they filled your house, every part of it, with those kind of distorted mirrors that constantly sent out the message, you are three foot tall and four feet wide. And you weren't allowed out of the house. You'd think this was true, wouldn't you? Your sense of self would be distorted and then you would go through life making decisions in your life that's based on misinformation. Misinformation that could affect drastically the direction of your life and your quality of life. I mean, Tyson Fury, just an example, would never have become heavyweight champion of the world if he had thought he was three foot high and four feet wide because he would have believed that the best he could possibly hope to do would be to hit his opponents in the kneecaps. Listen, I want to tell you, we are all at the mercy of the mirrors of our lives. And that's, not, and that's true, not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And a key factor in this is the relationship between children and their parents. Because children, they pick up their initial sense of worth 
from their parents. They pick up the signals that then form in their mind their view of what kind of person they actually are. They pick this up from the tone of voice, facial expressions, touch, etc. So you see, if they go into a room and faces light up as soon as they go in, people want to lift them up, people want to talk to them, people want to engage with them and play with them, then they quickly form a positive self-image. But if this doesn't happen, if instead the reaction they get is anything from between being ignored to actual abuse, well then, their self-image will inevitably, to some degree, be distorted. Because they'll come to the very early conclusion that I'm not bright enough, I'm not attractive enough, I'm not interested enough, I'm not special enough to be loved. And then once people have this information keyed in, well, everything else that they experience in life, everything else that, that happens to them in life is interpreted through this distorted lens of a distorted self-understanding. And once this self-view is in place in someone's life, then it can be desperately difficult to shift that. But you see, for Christians, there is an extra additional dimension to all of this. Because, you see, we know that behind these human mirrors that there is actually a far more important spiritual dimension. We know that he, the evil one, the one who the Bible tells us is the father of lies, John 8, 44, the accuser, Revelation 12, verse 10, we know that he is the one who inspires and who influences, who ultimately seeks to distort the life experience of human beings in order that they might live in shame. He's behind it, manipulate it, organize it. And he does that because he wants us to be less than God made us to be. And he wants us to be unable to become all that God wants us to become. Now here... Let me just tell you something. All of us in our lives have had distorted mirrors in one way or another. Perhaps not, probably not, our parents. But in, at some point in our life, in our journey through life, we've had distorted mirrors. And you know, all of us to some point, to some extent, have probably been distorted mirrors. And why is that? I'll tell you why. Because shame is one of the most powerful tools of control in this world. If you really want to get somebody to do something or not to do something, then shame is just about the most surefire way available to achieve that. It's more persuasive than logic, more persuasive than encouragement, even than the threat of physical punishment. Now, let me just give you an example of the power of this. As a family, many years ago, we went to, to Florida to visit some of the, the theme parks out there. And you know, you know what it's like, most of you do. You've, you've got to choose. There's so many different things you can do. It depends on how many days you're spending there. So but anyway, all the different guidebooks that we looked at seemed to suggest that one particular ride was something special. You had to go on this. So we got to it. And every one of us wanted to get on it except for one person. And everything we tried to get that person on that ride, we tried it all. We tried encouragement. 
We know you can do it. We've seen you do things like this before. We know you're up to it. We tried bribery. You go on this and we'll do whatever you want next. In fact, you can decide on the programme for the rest of the day. Nothing worked. But eventually, shame won the day. For the suggestion began to come through more and more strongly. If we're willing to do this, and you want, and you won't do it, then there's something wrong with you. You must be lacking in the courage department. Well, that did it. I went on the Back to the Future ride. <laughs> I did it. But you know what? It's a simulator, and I hate simulators. Give me a good roller coaster anytime. Simulators make me feel sick. I had to close my eyes when I was on it. It was horrible. And I was in a foul mood for the next couple of hours. Some people would say I've never got out of it yet. But there you are. You see, but that's the thing about shame. It maybe seems in the short term to get the results that we want as it produces the instant required behavior by the threat of the withdrawal of approval of love. But in the long term, it is highly destructive. And shame isn't only used in the family or in education, even in the workplace. No, the, the church can also use shame. The church has used shame, does use shame. You know, if you don't behave in the way that we want or the way that we expect, then we're going to value you a little less. We're going to think a little less of you, love you a little less. Your approval ratings are going to go down that let me here just make it clear I'm not arguing against discipline I'm not saying here that we shouldn't deal with sin with wrong behavior in the church or, or whatever else it's found in life I'm not even saying that there's not a place at times for a, a, a bit of confrontation and even conflict but what I am saying is that shame shouldn't form part of the equation you see people need to know that while we maybe don't agree with the way that they're living, we don't agree with their lifestyle, and while action of some kind might need to be taken, but what I want to make clear is that I believe we should never, as part of this, seek to shame someone and make them feel that they, as a person, are no longer valued, are rejected, are no longer loved. Now, I wish that I could say that distorted mirrors are the only cause of shame. The bad news, though, is that that's not the case. No, rather, there are times in life when the shame that we feel is a result of looking in the right mirror. And it's right we feel shame. For... As we look into our hearts and we see things like envy and pride and malice and greed. And as we look back over our lives and we see things and remember times when we've, you know, maybe deliberately hurt people. When we've said something or done something that's caused great damage. And so we look at that and we think of that. And as we look back, as we remember, we feel shame. We feel pain. Now, what I think is important to realize is that in itself, as long as we do something with it, as long as we deal with it, this isn't a bad thing. Far from it. It's an appropriate part 
of being human. It's an appropriate response to our conscience. In fact, I would say there are times in life that if you don't feel pain and shame about something you've said or done, then it's then that you've got a problem. That's the problem. Just an example. It's reported that the Nuremberg trials, when prominent Nazis were being held to account for their war crimes, that at some point during those trials, Goering, one of Hitler's leading henchmen, he was having his crimes laid out, read out in public. And these crimes were absolutely terrible. He was guilty of sanctioning some of the most appalling atrocities that have ever been known in all of human history. While this was being done, though, Goring leaned over to speak to Albert Speer, one of his co-accused, and what he said to him was, never mind, one day they'll build monuments to us. You see, there is such a thing. As one writer, Elton Trueblood, puts it, there is such a thing as appropriate shame, redemptive shame. There are times when it's right to feel shame, when shame can and should prompt us to maybe deal with our lives and to reach out for forgiveness. So I think it's important to discern, to seek to discern when we feel shame, whether that shame is inappropriate or appropriate. Whether the shame that we feel is a result of looking into distorted mirrors that lead us to unwarranted shame, or whether our shame is actually a justified reaction to looking in the right mirror. So we've got to do that. But no matter which is the case, I believe that shame dealt with in the right way can be overcome. So how do we do it? Where do we find the power to overcome shame? How do we do it? Well, the answer of many is, I'm going to do it. That's how it's going to be done. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do good. I'm going to be good. I'm going to improve my behavior. I'm going to improve my appearance. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do that. And so I'll earn acceptance and love and approval from God and man. That's what lots of people in this world do. But it just doesn't work. It does not work. For we're people and we're fallible and we fail and we fall below our own standards, never mind God's or anyone else's. And every single failure adds to our pain, adds to our sense of shame. The reaction of some is here just to, to lower the bar and lower the standard. To say, listen, I'm going to accept myself as I am. I'm just going to think good thoughts about myself and keep on fighting to do that. And it sounds great, and that's what goes on in our world today. That's the accepted wisdom. But the facts are that it just doesn't work. Neither within ourselves, in our interaction with others, and it certainly does not work in terms of our relationship with God. It doesn't work. No, shame can only be dealt with in one way. And that is by the grace of God. By the undeserved love, mercy and forgiveness of God. By recognising that the sin that causes us shame, like every other sin in all human history, 
was taken by Jesus upon his shoulders and paid for by his death on the cross. As he, the sinless Son of Man, without shame, stood in our place and paid that debt we could never pay and dealt with all our sin and all our shame. Now, if your sense of shame is maybe deserved, if there's something that you've said or done or whatever that you know today rightly brings you shame, then what you need to do in order to receive grace is to confess this before God, to repent of it, to ask him to give you the strength that you need from now on to live another way and not to repeat the sin of your past. And then what you have to do is accept that you are forgiven by God. Even if you don't initially feel it, I tell you, you have got to accept the fact based on God's promise that you are forgiven by God. That's what I read earlier, 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now sometimes, if it's possible, if it won't cause maybe more pain and, and more hurt, it's also good and right to try and sort things out, if we can, with the person we've hurt as well. Recently, though, I came across the story of a situation where this wasn't possible. They couldn't sort it out, yet the, the person involved felt they had to do something about their sense of shame, something practical, other than repent. So what they did was they wrote a note and they left it pinned to the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., along with the, the faded photograph of a young Vietnamese soldier and his baby daughter. And this is what the note said. Dear sir, for 22 years I have carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day that we faced each other on that trail in Chu Lai. Why you didn't take my life, I will never know. You stared at me for so long, armed with your AK-47 and yet you did not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting the way I was trained to kill VC. So many times over the years, I stared at the picture of you and your daughter. Each time, my heart is burned with the pain of guilt. I have two daughters myself now. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance that life held for you. It is time for me to continue the life process and release my pain and shame. Forgive me, sir. Now, for some of us, maybe our equivalent to this is just to write down the details of something we have done that shamed us. Or a person we've hurt who, as in this example, for one reason or another, we cannot apologise to. Maybe because we know it just caused more hurt and damage. 
So write down the incident. Write down the name of the person on a piece of paper. And then set light to it. And let it burn away. Because that is how completely our shame is dealt with. By the grace of God. But if your sense of shame today is undeserved. There's no real reason for it. Nothing you can pin it to. If it's been caused by looking at distorted mirrors that have maybe left you feeling unloved, of little value, then again I want to say to you, it's the grace of God you need. It's the love of God you need. For, do you know what the Bible actually tells us in, in Psalm 17 verse 8, as well as a number of numerous other places? What it tells us, it, it tells us that as men and women, young people, whatever, that we are the apple of God's eye. We're the apple of God's eye. Now you see, what this is getting at is, is you know when you, you come up close to someone and you're able to see your reflection in their eye? If you don't believe me, try it, but make sure you've got a close personal relationship with them first. Well, there's a way here, what this is saying, a way in which all of us are so precious to God, so loved by God, that our reflection, in some sense, is there constantly to be seen in the eye of God. That, it's just a picture. It's just a way of trying to get across how much we matter, how much we are loved, how much we are valued, each one of us, by our God. So if you've had experiences in your life that have left you feeling of no value, and deal with them by no longer focusing on the experiences. No longer focusing on how you feel about yourself. Deal with them by focusing on what the Bible tells you. Choose those verses. Pick them out that tell you how much you are valued, how much you are loved by God. That you're the apple of his eye. That he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. And maybe, I don't know, open up yourself up to Christian friends. Maybe in small groups we'll be able to do more of this. Just affirm one another. But let's do whatever we need to do. That we might turn our backs, close our ears to what are the lies of the evil one. And instead, hear the truth of the word of God. About the wonderful love. God has for us, that he's dealt with our sin, he's dealt with our pain, he's dealt with our shame. Let's hold on to what God has done. Let's come and pray together. Father, today we want to thank you that, that our standing in Jesus Christ and who we are as people doesn't rely on what other people think of us, doesn't even rely on what we might think of ourselves doesn't rely on our past experiences. What it stands on is what you have done for us and what you think of us and how you see us in Jesus. Lord, help us to hold to that truth. Help us to turn back the accusation of the evil one and help us to truly rejoice in who we are in Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen.